It's good to be uh, collaborating with Christchurch on these services. Thank you to Chris and Steve for all you've done and for those who've done readings as well. Uh, do keep the passage open in front of you. We're in Luke chapter 2 verses 41 to 52 and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray please that you would teach us now by your Spirit as we look at your Word and move us, we pray, to worship Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you've managed to get hold of uh, The Christmas We Didn't Expect. It, it, it's a really helpful book and I, I hope you've managed to get hold of it. Um, in it, the author helps us, chapter by chapter, to understand better Jesus's identity, who he is. And he emphasises that Jesus is one person with two natures, that he is fully God and fully human. Fully God, that he, is, he existed before Bethlehem, before the birth uh, in Bethlehem. He existed even before the creation of the world. Jesus has always existed and fully human. And we thought about this last week, didn't we? With a, a human body, human emotions, human mind and human will. One person with two natures. And I want to encourage you to go back to chapter 5 and, and reread that because that explains really well uh, this idea that Jesus is one person with two natures. And what we see in this passage that we're going to look at is that each nature has a family. Jesus, in his divine nature, wasn't on his own for all eternity past. No, he was in a loving union with his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they are a trinity and have always been so. And that is Jesus's family. But we also see in his human nature that he has a family too. And that is Mary and Joseph and his siblings. And we see Jesus and how he relates to both in this passage. This passage uh, from, from Luke chapter 2 is the only passage that we've got in the Bible which gives us anything of Jesus's childhood. And we see the scene set for us in verse 41. It says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Mary and Joseph were faithful Jews who would head to Jerusalem every year for the Passover feast in obedience to the Old Testament. And it says Jesus was 12 years old on this year when they went to the feast. And then at the end of the feast, they were heading back but Jesus wasn't in the group. It would have been a big group because some of the roads that they would have gone on would have been quite dangerous. So they probably kept together as quite a big group uh, heading back to their hometown. And it, it was about an 80 mile journey. So that would have taken maybe about four days for them to travel. Well, they head back. And at the end of the first day, Mary and Joseph look to see where Jesus is, but they can't find him. And we must be careful not to add anything into the text here. There's no blame laid on Mary and Joseph. It's just the way it was. He wasn't with them. And so verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And you could imagine, I mean, this is a parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? Losing your child. The panic that they must have been in. What a horrible journey that must have been, heading back to Jerusalem and then searching for Jesus. And it says they found him on the third day. Well, that's probably one day leaving, one day coming back, and then searching for him. But it must have been a horrible time for them. We once lost one of our children at Chessington World of Adventures. 
We took him out of his pushchair, uh, put him down. I was dealing with the pushchair, looked back and he'd gone. And we were with other family members and there was quite a panic. We looked at each other and the, the look of panic in people's eyes. Well, you know, there were quite a crowd of people and, and he was gone. Uh, and there was a big search. We looked for him and, and sure enough, about 30 seconds later, we spotted him. And it was only 30 seconds, but actually that was long enough for all sorts of scenarios to go, come into my imagination and for, uh, and for us to panic and for, for the adrenaline to be running. And I, I can remember that feeling. It was only 30 seconds. This was, well, three days. And the stress they must have been under. And they got to the temple. And what did they find? They found him, verse 46, after three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And he says they were astonished. But you can imagine Mary's panic and her saying, Verse 48, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus' reply gives us our first point. Maybe you were thinking we'd never get there. Well, our first point is about how Jesus relates to his heavenly father. And it is this, Jesus' devotion to his heavenly father. Would you have a look at verse 49? These are the first recorded words of Jesus after the incarnation. Uh, we do have Jesus' words before the incarnation. After all, since Jesus was there from the beginning of creation and God speaks in the Old Testament, that's going to be Jesus' word as well, isn't it? So these are just the first words of Jesus after the incarnation. And what we see here in verse 49 is Jesus knows exactly who he is. So it says, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now that's a contrast from verse 48. Mary has just said to him, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus is saying, I, I know who I am. I know I'm the son of God. I know that God is my father. Now that's important, isn't it? There are a couple of um, mistakes that people make about Jesus and the Incarnation, which this just uh, demolishes straight away. The first is the idea that, well, maybe Jesus was just a normal human being, and then at some point in his life, maybe at his baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him, then he becomes the Son of God. No, no, Jesus says, I, I know that God's my Father. And it's not like Jesus is like Spider-Man, you know, in the movie where, where the, the spider bites him and then all of a sudden strange things are happening and, and Spider-Man is suddenly finding out that he can do incredible things like, like spin webs and climb up walls. And it's not like Jesus as a child is portrayed as someone who's going, wow, I seem to be able to walk on water and I seem to be able to do incredible things. No, 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 he's not discovering. It's not like at the end of the gospel you've got Jesus going, I now know that I'm the son of God. No, no, he knows right from the start. It's everyone else that's got to catch up. He knows who he is. And he knows that his loyalty must be to his heavenly father and to his father's purposes. You see, there's more going on in verse 49 than it looks. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But actually, the, the original is a bit more cryptic than that. 
After all, <coughs> when you get to verse 50, it then says, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. But verse 49 looks fairly clear, doesn't it? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's saying, well, that's the temple. God's my father. And Mary knew that God was his father and Joseph knew. And so actually that, that's not that unclear, is it? Except that in verse 49, the word house is not actually in the original. It says, he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's? My father's what? Well, yeah, house is, is kind of the obvious thing to say, in my father's place. But it could well be bigger than that. Saying, actually, I need to be about my father's business, about my father's purposes, my father's plans. His uh, plans take priority in my life. And actually, when it says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I had to be, that saying, it's necessary. I've got to do this. Isn't, you see, Jesus isn't just saying, oh, you should have known where to look for me. He's saying, no, my purpose, my purpose in my life is to be about my father's business. I've got to do that. And what we see as we go through the Gospels is that's going to take Jesus away from his, his earthly family, both in his ministry, but also in his death, that Jesus is going to die and his mother is going to be looking on in tears as he accomplishes his father's purposes. It's going to be a path of total devotion to his heavenly father. Jesus is saying, I know who I am, and I know where my loyalties lie. Now, Jesus' devotion is to his heavenly father. But secondly, we also see in this passage, Jesus obeyed his parents. Of course, we do actually see in the passage Jesus submitting to other authorities as well, don't we? When he was in the temple, he was, uh, he was willing to listen to the teachers. He sat at their feet and he asked them questions, which is amazing, isn't it? Jesus, in his divine nature, being the one who knows all things, yet in his human nature, was prepared to sit and listen and learn. But in 51, uh, verse 51, we also see, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. In other words, Jesus was obedient to Mary and Joseph, to both of them. And I don't think this is saying that there was a change here. It's not like, uh, uh, like Luke is saying, you know, up until this point he'd been a really naughty boy, but now after this incident he was very obedient. No, there's no hint of that here. Nor is it actually saying that this incident was an incident of disobedience. After all, Mary doesn't say to Jesus, son, why have you disobeyed us? She says, son, why have you treated us like this? Which is different, isn't it? No, there's no hint that Jesus was ever disobedient, but Luke is just emphasising he was obedient. Which is an incredible thing, isn't it? Given who Jesus is that he would choose to be obedient to them. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? What, what would it have been like in their household? What would meal times have been like? What would it have been like when Mary and Joseph said, now it's time to do your chores? And what would it have been like when other family members joined? And a whole load of things. It'd be fascinating to know, wouldn't it? And yet we just don't know. But we do know this. He was obedient. And if there was ever someone who could have claimed the right not to obey his parents, Jesus was the one. He's fully God. He's the source of all wisdom. And yet he submitted himself. He obeyed 
Mary and Joseph. And in the book, it makes a really good point in the chapter for today. It says, we learn from this that godly submission in whatever context does not stem from lack of competency. In other words, we don't just submit to people because they are more competent than us. No, there are people we're to submit to because it is the right thing to do and because God tells us to do it and God puts those people in authority over us. And that's why Jesus obeyed his parents. It's interesting, isn't it? In uh, the book of Ephesians, when Paul instructs children to obey his parents, he gives them the reason. He says, because it is right. It's just the right thing to do, to obey your parents. And uh, the Christmas carol, once in Royal David City, picks up on this. Uh, it says this, uh, And through all his wondrous childhood, he would honour and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. Now, I remember as a child hating that verse and thinking it was just a bit bleh. But actually, it is getting to a good point. It's picking up on this passage, isn't it? That Jesus did obey his parents. And Christian children should obey theirs too. Because it's the right thing to do. And parents, actually, we need to know as well that God's put us in, the, in a position of authority over our children. Not just when we get things right, but because that's the position we're in. We don't always have to explain to our children every time why they've got to do what we say or, or reason with them. Actually, sometimes it is okay just to say, well, because I'm your parent. Now, we've got to be careful and, uh, uh, and we've got to do it in a wise way as well. And actually, the instruction in Ephesians for us is not to exasperate our children. So we need to hear that, don't we, when we're doing it? But this isn't, you could apply this to more than just uh, children and parents. There are other authorities that God puts over us that we're to submit to, to the government and also to church leadership as well. Jesus obeyed his parents and so we've seen haven't we Jesus relating to his heavenly father loyal devoted to his heavenly father and also obeying his earthly parents and so we see Jesus don't we not just in theory as one person with two natures but actually living it out relating in his divine nature to his heavenly father and relating in his human nature to his earthly family. And in both cases, actually, he submits, doesn't he? He's there to do his father's will, to be about his father's business. And he's also going to submit to his parents. And that's what we see through Jesus's life, that he submits. We saw it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself. And that's what he did throughout his life, humbling himself to his Father's will. And it would take him, as we've already thought, to the cross. But what we also see in Philippians chapter 2 is that, yes, Jesus humbles himself, but then God exalts him. 
And it's that way round. Jesus does the humbling. He humbles himself, but his Father, God the Father, then exalts him. And we see in Philippians chapter 2 that God exalts him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And that is a consistent pattern throughout the Bible, that as people humble themselves before God, so God exalts them. He brings down the proud, lifts up the humble. It's what Mary sang about. We, we see it in the first chapter, well, in Luke chapter 1, but also the first chapter of the Christmas we didn't expect, that Mary humbles herself. And, and she says in the Magnificat, he has scattered the proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And so it's unsurprising, actually, that we are called to humble ourselves before Jesus, the one person in two natures, fully God, fully man. We're to humble ourselves before him, to bow before him. And as we bow before him and place him and say, as our king and say, Jesus, you're going to rule in my life. So Jesus lifts us up. He exalts us. Last week, uh, in a Neil sermon, he said, Jesus fully shares our humanity that we might fully share in his family. Which family? Well, not the earthly family. Incredibly, in the divine family. He draws us into that family. As we humble ourselves before him, recognising our sin and asking him for forgiveness and saying, we, Jesus, we bow before you as our king, he brings us into his divine family and says, actually, you can become, well, let's see what it says in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what he exalts us to. He draws us into his family of love so that we, sinners though we are, can call God our Heavenly Father. And so have you come to Jesus and humbled yourself before him? Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that we see Jesus uh, we see his divine nature, we see his human nature, we see him relating to you, his heavenly father, and we see him relating to his earthly parents. And Father, we pray, please, that you would help us to humble ourselves before him, to bow before him as our Lord, that he would rule over our lives. And we praise you that when we do that, so Jesus lifts us up, and draws us into your family, and that therefore we can call you our Heavenly Father because of Jesus and because of him, him humbling himself and dying on the cross for us. Father, we praise you for Jesus. Amen.